<laughs> it's hard to believe that Rosh Hashanah is so around yeah. the corner. Yeah. <laughs> really, really around the corner. Um, so what I was going to talk about today, it's part of this Brachan Shmon Esrei, but originally was going to be something I was going to talk about at the end of it, and we haven't quite done like the middle part. Um, this is more of a transition, but it ties so importantly to Rosh Hashanah. I thought it doesn't really hurt to do it in this different order, and it will be more helpful <laughs> maybe now than, you know, after Sukkot or something. Um, okay. So we we have we introduced this topic already, which is the topic that. There are 13 brachas in the middle of Shemona Esrei that are the requests. I'm just going to close the door. And the first of the requests is Das, knowledge. And Abu Darham made a couple of points about it. One was, good morning. One, one point that he said about the series of 13 was um, that the first ones in some way are, are more important than the ones afterward. But the other was that each one depended on the ones before. So that the first, the second through 13th all depended on having first, this first one of Das. And I think we even said briefly that you have to have Das. Uh, actually, Abu Darham said it. He said a person has to have Das before he could have Tshuva. And that's why the first one is Das, and only the second one is asking Hashem to, to help us do tshuva. So that was kind of the topic for today, because we're going into Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. It would be nice to have a shear next Wednesday if we could pull it off. It's the day after Rosh Hashanah, so I don't know. You know, in terms of preparation, we could always just do, like, only semi-prepared, like just the definitions of the words. But um, it's possible, I, may, I might have some material on Yona from last year. Mm. Seems to me I took a bunch of notes after Yom Kippur. <laughs> We're just too late to talk about them. But then they're here for this year. So it could be that, well, I might have to take a look and see what the story is. But it could be we could have a class next week on Yona or something different. It's a shame to do something different when it's tshuva coming yeah, up, but yeah. anyway, whatever. <laughs> I suppose anything we talk about will be according to the topic, really. It makes it very easy. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk today about this idea of das before teshuva, which is, that's why I said it's really the end of the subject of das, of the brach of das, because it's transitioning to the next one, but it's good for this time. So why, why do you need to have Das before you can have Tshuva? So I, I don't really need to rip them out, but whatever. Okay, so I think that the, the answer to this, and I was just looking now into some, there's a nice translation of some Sichos of Rav Yerucham into English for Elul mm-hmm. and Yamim Noraim. So I was kind of flipping through that, reminding myself of what I had read over there in the past. And I think it's not just consistent. I think it's the same idea that he's bringing up from other sources that are brought up over here by Rav Hirsch. Um, and I think this is really the secret to why there has to be das before there's tshuva. 
And the answer, I think, lies in, or at least he, he brings it here. He has obviously essays on tshuva too, which probably would be worth looking at. <laughs> um, in this essay that I saw, Shavuot's time, and I know that I've, I've shared parts of it with you before, on Iser Dibor Sheker Hanifa and Genevastas, the prohibitions against lying, falsehood, flattery. Are we getting directions to somewhere? I feel like I'm getting hearing a direction. Oh, okay. Maybe it's not coming from me. Um, and misleading people. So why is that relevant to knowledge? And the reason I think it's relevant to knowledge is that according to the way Rav Hirsch writes about falsehood, he writes about the prohibition, but he really goes on to talk about why it is so bad. Why is lying so bad? And it sounds to me, I believe I'm understanding this correctly, that what Rav Hirsch is saying is that if you want to know what's the opposite of lying, it's truth. But the way he describes truth, you come to understand this as das. Or at least that there's a close connection. Now the word das doesn't mean truth. Das is understanding or knowledge, right? So where did these overlap? I'll tell you where we saw them overlap. Was in Um keep kind of taking steps backward. I'm not making much progress here. <laughs> In Bereshis, Hashem brought the animals to Adam to name them. He formed him. Hang on. Okay. And Adam called names to all the animals and birds in the sky and all the living wild beasts of the fields, but he didn't find a helpmeet for himself. Okay, that's Bereshis. Um, it's actually Pasuk Yutes to Chaf. Yutes was that Hashem fashioned, he shaped, um, he shaped from the ground all the animals and all the birds of the heavens, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And everything he called them, that was his name, that was its name. So the usual way that we've explained that, which is in itself fascinating, is that Adam was able to see within each animal what it truly was. So the names that he gave those animals, that's really what they were. Rav Hirsch gives a slightly different angle on that in Bereshis. He says, man gives things names not as God, meaning Hashem names things too. Mm-hmm. God called the light day, right? which is, I suppose, a kind of naming, although it doesn't use the word shame, which is probably intentional. He kind of touches on that. Man gives things names, not as God, who sees things objectively as they truly are, but as nefesh chaya, living creature, subjectively, from his own point of view, as a nefesh, an individual, chaya, who receives acceptable or rejectable impression of things about him. In other words, when the man is going to give the names to the animals, God says, I'm going to bring these animals and let's see what you call them. It's because man, 
does not see the objective and complete truth in what he looks at. He is only capable of seeing. He doesn't see them as they truly are. He sees them in the way that is filtered by his point of view and how he his capacity to understand. That kind of, yeah. <laughs> we all know, right, what's the, the famous one is the, the wise men trying to define the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. The blind men. One's feeling the trunk, one's feeling the tail, one's feeling the toenails, you know. So you get different results. It is according to the impression they make on him that he gives things names. So there's an interaction between a person's ability to understand and also what is shown to him. I mean, if you observe a lion for an hour or even a month, you're going to see certain behaviors, but you might not see all of them. You don't see all the behaviors. Oh, my goodness. They're talking about taking another step away. There was a very, very famous controversy. This is going back already probably 10 years now, but famous controversy regarding a Tosfos. There's a Tosfos. I, I couldn't tell you where it is. I mean, I could try and find out. There's a Tosfos that described, there's a Gemara that's talking about how you acquire things, right? So when you make a Kenyan, you know, at a wedding, the rabbi always has a handkerchief, and you pick up the handkerchief or you pick up a, f- a pen, right? And through that, you symbolically take acquisition of whatever it is you're buying. Do it with property, do it with chametz, right? Whatever it is you're selling, you pick something up. So normally, the goal is to pick up the thing you're buying or acquiring or giving, you know, not, not a substitute for it. The reason you use a substitute is if it's impractical. So somehow the toast was asking, obviously, I haven't seen this inside, something like, well, what about an elephant? Let's say you were going to buy an elephant. So it doesn't come up for most of us, but if you owned a zoo. Or you lived in a place where elephants were used, you know, like even now in Thailand, an elephant is really a very practical, in some cases, the most practical kind of heavy, heavy machinery is just to have an elephant and feed it and take care of it. And it's much better than having, you know, a caterpillar tractor or something. So if you're going to buy an elephant, what should you do? because it's hard to pick up an elephant. So the answer was, well, if you caused it to jump for something, then it's as if you lifted it up because you caused it to, okay. So that's, I, I don't know, I didn't see it inside and I don't know what even the halakha conclusion is over there. Maybe you should just use a handkerchief. I don't know, okay? Like I, I'm really not familiar with the halakhic topic. What, what has come up, and I've heard rabbis talking about this, was there was a big brouhaha where there were people who were saying, well, elephants don't jump. So Tosvos was probably speaking hypothetically, meaning if you could make a jump. And he said, just make a jump because he didn't know much, of, uh, he, they, didn't know much about elephants, whichever of the Balitosvos wrote it, because... They lived in France, and what would they know about elephants? And they didn't have YouTube videos to watch elephants, and zoos were very few and far between. Okay, so that's kind of like a difficult statement. What's difficult about it? At first glance, it sounds reasonable to to say, well, look, like they probably didn't know so much about elephants. 
what's difficult about that is, like, if the Balitosos didn't know so much about elephants, would they just not have commented that comment at all about the elephants? <laughs> yeah, like, use a different example. I'm not sure the Gemara is actually talking about, like I said, I didn't see it inside. Like, <laughs> you know, or just say, like, if you could get it to go up, fine. If not, then you can't. Like, you know, it just doesn't, we can imagine people within our own lives who have that degree of integrity. It doesn't require us to stretch ourselves beyond the bounds of human honesty <laughs> to get it that like, you know, and we don't see that this is a consistent pattern. So this was the argument. The argument was, is it insulting? Is there a lack of respect to saying that the Balitosfos didn't know about elephants? Or is that not a lack of respect? Is that just like, well, they probably didn't. And like, therefore, we don't take it personally if they were wrong about the elephants. OK, fine. Anyway, we had, for a while, we were very into these books. They had these books of, they call them imponderables. They're just like little science sort of related questions, miscellaneous. Why, when do fish sleep? And why do people have, you know, hair on their arms? And just like, you know, how do they print the M on the M&Ms? There's just like random sort of questions. And we used to always get, whenever there was a new book, why do penguins get cold feet? You know, we'd buy a new book. And then the next book came out, this is some years later, and it's called Why Do Elephants Jump? Or something like that. And I was like, oh, no way, right? <laughs> I have this book upstairs, right? Well, it turns out that you know, there haven't been too many cases of elephants being observed jumping, but in fact, at least baby elephants have been observed jumping. So right there, it's like, well, so who didn't know what? A little hard to say, right? Sometimes you only know what you've observed. And even if you've observed for a long time, you're limited by what you are able to notice and understand, but you're also limited by what the animal has managed to show you. Jane Goodall didn't spend one year out in the African wherever observing monkeys and, or not monkeys, chimpanzees, sorry. Forgive me, Jane Goodall, right? <laughs> chimpanzees. She spent like a lot of years out there observing them, right? And people are still observing other people. I said, There's a lot to observe before you see everything there is to observe in an animal's behavior. So coming back, man gives things names, not as God, who sees things objectively as they truly are, but as nefesh chaya, subjectively from his own point of view, as a nefesh, an individual, chaya, who receives acceptable or rejectable impressions of things about him. It is according to the impression they make on him that he gives things names. When people give names to things, in particular, the case here is animals, then what they're giving, what they're naming is their impression. In these names, he expresses the impression which his imagination forms of things. So now he's gone even another step. This is something we've talked about in terms of vision, right? That what we see is not really what comes into our eyeballs as light. It's what's interpreted by our brain based on what came into our eyes which is why even though there are blind spots in both of our eyes, the brain fills in what's between them. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned this. My grandmother was legally blind near the end of her life. And 
uh, we had read about this phenomenon, so we knew it was normal. So she mentioned, she shared with us, um, I think it's called Charles Bonnet, Bonnet or Bonnet syndrome, which is she would see little like cartoon people and characters because she had very large blind spots. And I guess they were so big that it didn't always fill in with what should be in the picture, but the brain will fill something in. So she would see them and she really saw them but it didn't bother her because she understood that it wasn't a hallucination. Mm -hmm. It wasn't being crazy. It was just that she was seeing whatever her brain was filling in and her brain was not getting a very big picture. It was like little TV shows in the middle of the, of the whole scene that she had because she had very large blind spots for macular degeneration. Okay. So in these names, he expresses the impression which his imagination forms of things. That's a very accurate statement from Reverse. Mm -hmm. It's not even that we name things in accordance with what we see. We name things in accordance with what our mind tells us we saw, which may or may not perfectly correspond to what we saw. And thereby, meaning thereby in the naming, he indicates their shum, their place in his world. Hence the word shame, name. That the word shame for name and the word sham over there are really the same concept. Sham means the place in the world. Like it's coordinates rel relative to me. That's where it is. It's over there. That's what it is over there in my world. That that's, it's always relative to the self. That's what the name is ranks them in appropriate kind and species, etc. of things. All of our knowledge of things is such a name giving. That's also an interesting thought. When we are learning about things, it is a kind of name giving. I think there are probably a few directions one could go in working through that idea. But this knowledge is only subjective. It is only asher yikre lo ha'adam nefesh how a man calls things low for himself what they are to him. The name a person gives to something, the categories, the way he understands it, has to do with what it means to himself. What things really are, the true nature of things in themselves, no human eye sees. But although the nefesh chaya does refer back to the whole limited extent of human knowledge, nevertheless, skepticism is opposed by the assurance which the hu shemo gives. Okay. So here he's addressing a critical dilemma that comes from the recognition that everything that we see is filtered through our own limitations, our own limited experience, our own limited knowledge and exposure and understanding. And the dilemma is then how can I trust anything that I think? Meaning all, it, it's, it's limited by myself. So how can I know anything beyond myself? And even ourselves we don't understand very well. <laughs> okay, so there is an assurance here, which is, everything which a person calls with regard to himself, you know, hushmo, that is its name. So what is that assurance then? Because he already said we don't see it objectively as it truly is. So then what, what does it mean that it is its name? 
The assurance which the addition of Hushmo gives is that even that, even if that which we know from the impression things make on us is not the whole truth of the real nature of things, still it does contain the truth. So on the one hand, the humility of understanding that whatever it is we know is not the whole story. But on the other hand, the confidence to continue forward, to learn and to try and understand better, knowing that what we know is of the truth. It just isn't the whole truth. God, who created man and things, and led his created creatures to man for him, to give them names according to the impression they made on him, also guarantees men that the amount of knowledge of the nature of things which is granted to them is no deception. That's, that's a remarkable insight on the, <laughs> the next part of that passage. That this fraction of the truth is also true and is as much of the truth of the real true nature of things that he requires in his association with things for the accomplishment of his mission on earth. And thus he may safely have confidence in it. So if a person is honestly trying to see the world and understand it in its truth, then he may be confident that Hashem is showing him enough of it for him to do what he needs to do and make the decisions he needs to make. This, is, I think, would be especially reassuring. Now, there's those times where you say, if I knew what I, then what I knew now, I would have done it differently. There's something to be said for realizing that as much of the truth, that you never would know the whole thing, and as much of the truth of the real true nature of things that you require in your association with things for the accomplishment of your mission on earth will be shown to you. Now, I mean, you have to be looking. <laughs> you have to be looking, but it means we don't have to look back. We're never going to know the whole truth. So we don't ever have to look back and say, you know, we, we can look back and say, if I only had known then what I know now, I would have done differently. Yes, because that informs us going forward. But we don't have to kick ourselves over the fact that we didn't know if there was not any reason we could have known or should have known. Thus, belief in God, who created men and things, forms an essential foundation also to our theoretical knowledge. If you don't trust that there's a God who knows the whole truth, then how can you believe anything? Without this belief, theoretical scientific knowledge cannot escape hopeless skepticism and has no guarantee that they are not deducing a dream from a dream and proving a dream by a dream. Right? That was, I remember when I was a kid and somebody at the Shabbos table was saying, well, how do you know that you're, not, that you're actually alive or that you didn't come into existence a minute ago with all your memories intact? Or you know, these kinds of things where the, you start, after all you start questioning, like, do I exist? Do I, like, <laughs> like do I, can I trust my own memory? Can I tr you know? And the answer is sort of yes and sort of no. But if you trust that there's a God who knows, then you can have a kind of confidence in what you know or don't know. Okay, so I, I think that's enough from that piece there. So now, that's about knowing. With that in the back of our minds, and then turning to Rav Hirsch and Chorev on the prohibition against falsehood. God who created man to be just, just like to do tzedakah and mishpat, to be fair, 
to do things properly. That is to say, to leave and give to all entities and all their relations that which is their due. In other words, to treat others properly. Hashem created us, and He created us to be just and fair, and to recognize that other people have rights and other people have needs, and not everything that's ours is for us. We have to, you know, we have to allow people benefits of the doubt. We have to share and take turns. God has also endowed his mind with the faculty of mirroring the reality of things in their various relations. This is familiar. This is similar, right? So that man may be able to perceive the entities and their relations. He gave us das. He gave us this quality of a mind that can perceive what is around us and the relationships to us and to each other and on the strength of this knowledge, give to them what the teachings of justice laid down as their right. This reproduction of reality in the mind is truth. Now, how could you rely on that? Well, he told you because of this pasuk and bracious. <laughs> truth, therefore, is a precondition of justice. For only according to the image of things and their relations which appears in man's mind can man behave toward them. If the image be false, his behavior towards them will be different than from what is due to them, and he becomes unjust. So when you think that someone has done something they didn't do, that changes your behavior towards them, and that's unjust. Mm -hmm. And thus, if nothing else, justice itself, which is our divine calling, will guarantee that as far as that calling of ours demands, we should be able to perceive the reality of external things from their reflection within ourselves. He's saying just the demands of justice, which we don't always like to think about so much because it also means that everything we do matters, which is a little scary. But justice also demands that we be able to correctly perceive the reality of things inside our own minds. Just as God has endowed the human mind with the faculty of mirroring the reality of its owner's external world, I, I believe this is what the das is, <laughs> the ability within the mind to have an accurate reality, if incomplete, but, but reliable, <laughs> reality inside the mind of what is outside in the world, so also he has given him the faculty of revealing to others the reality as known to him by means of his language. So that's Rashi, right? Hashem blew a living soul into man and in doing so gave him Deya Vadibor. Deya is Das and Dibor is speech. Rehersh is explaining why they go together. That it, we have this ability to perceive what's around us. We also have the ability of revealing it to other people. And thus, the individual can live not only according to his own experience, but the whole of mankind can cooperate for the improvement of the human mind. If you think of all people in a united organism of humanity, the individual can inherit the spiritual treasure of all mankind. And by becoming richer in truth, also become richer in justice and lead a life of action instead of a life of mere experience. In such a manner, by means of that supreme blessing, God has knitted together the community of man with a vital thread of love. 
which is why das is connection and das is love. Because it joins people together through the tool of speech. We can join our knowledges together, have a greater sense of truth in the world that anyone's own experience can develop, because I can learn from other people's experiences even though I wasn't there. And all of mankind then not only gets richer in knowledge, but more just, and society becomes more perfect because there's more knowledge. And God has ordained <clears throat> that man should rely on his brother for the spiritual good, namely truth. So for whatever reason, since each person, as he said in Bratius, only knows things in accordance with how he has understood it and what has been shown to him, but that can be vastly expanded by sharing information with each other through language, that means that we depend on each other. The fact that we are each imperfect causes us to need each other. He does not explain over here why that is so. So now, with a, the, all of this is the background. But he who instead of truthfully expressing in words what he has experienced to be real, communicates a false image of it to his brother, who accepts it and bases his behavior on it, either being unjust to his fellow creatures or having a wrong conception of their intentions towards him, being destroyed by them. In other words, if someone lies to someone else, now that other person may change their behavior toward others based on that wrong knowledge, that misinformation. He may treat people unjustly, or he may be hurt by them because he had the wrong idea. That man turns into a curse, that supreme blessing of the Creator. For he who denies truth to his brother, thus violating the highest duty towards him which God has imposed, calls down a, her a curse. He who lies calls down a curse. The liar is more dangerous than the thief. The thief takes only the means of life as such, while the liar takes those of a just life, producing in turn injustice and misery. For to appreciate the nature of things, you rely on your knowledge of them. And if somebody deceives you about their true nature, he robs you of a support or causes you to lean on a support that is insecure. Okay, so what we have here then is falsehood is the opposite of truth. But falsehood, in its way, is the opposite of das. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. that, that weaving together all of humanity, knitting them together with the vital thread of love, that's really a description of a time, if you think about the ultimate end of that would be the Messianic era, where there's righteousness. This was the Haftarah last week, wasn't it? The, or the week before? Right, the righteousness that everyone can live together in peace because everyone will treat each other properly and there won't be any injustice. Mm -hmm. And that's the same era as Kimala Haaretz Deyas Hashem, the world being filled with the knowledge of God. That's, it, go, it's the same, it goes together. Mm -hmm. This is the same process. Okay, so then, okay, I want to get to the consequences of this because there's a piece now that leads us to the tshuva aspect, aside from being very interesting. By stealing from another directly something precious, 
truth. And indirectly, the most precious thing, justice, the liar also kills himself spiritually, for he extinguishes in himself the divine spark which alone makes of him a human being created for the benefit of his fellow men. That's a very strong statement, but is only understandable, I think, in light of that Rashi. Yeah, yeah, not that part I meant, the part about extinguishing the divine spark. That lying is like killing your Tselemelokim. Now remember, we have had all these discussions about how Das goes to Tselemelokim. But why should lying kill your Tselemelokim, so to speak, or cut it off? So I think, okay, Vayipach. God blew Be'apav into his nostrils, Nishmas Chaim, a living soul. And man became a very vital, very alive being. Well, aren't all the animals, Rashi says, aren't all animals and wild beasts living beings with a nefesh? But what this sentence means is, Lenefesh Chaya the living being. I, in other words, the creature that is most alive. What is most alive about a human compared to any other living creature? Shenetosef Bo, that he has in addition to everything else, Dea Vedibor. That Hashem, in blowing into him his nishama, his nishmas chayim, which is that bit from God into the human, there is added into the human being Dea and Dibor, which means when Dea and Dibor are misused, you can understand how, how Rav Hirsch came to such a drastic conclusion that when a person lies and steals from others, he's killing himself spiritually. He calls it murder of your own personality. Okay. Now there's one other element here from this essay that I particularly wanted to bring, which is this. For the, he says, so yes, truthfulness is demanded by justice. And telling lies is in itself an avera. So you don't need more than that. Torah said not to do it, can't do it. It destroys other people as well as yourself. So morally, morally, legally, it's wrong. But he goes on, he wants to, sort of bring in the, you have to understand to some extent like how huge this is. <clears throat> what people mess with or mess with truth. But for the whole of life's purity, the consequences of the habit of lying are as horrible as are blissful the consequences of truthness. Few sins are committed without the sinner taking comfort from the hope that called upon to justify himself, he would be able to save himself by lying. And therefore, almost every sin is accompanied by the resolve to resort to lying. This is an unbelievable psychological insight. It's true. It's true. And by the way, once you've heard him say it, it's truer. <laughs> Scary, but true. Okay? So... You're doing something, I'm trying to think of an example that's not too distressing, but there isn't any really. 
you're saying something you maybe shouldn't say. Well, I'm sure if anyone saw me, they would realize that really, or they would think that, they wouldn't know that I went out like this. They would think that I started with my skirt long enough and it shrunk, okay? <laughs> or just scooted up by itself. Or, um, well, I would tell them that it isn't really Lashon Hara because I, I, I'm, try, I'm struggling even to think because these thoughts, even my own ones, they flash through very quickly. They're really just under the surface of consciousness. They're there. It's like an inner self-talk. There's this inner conversation. And when you're going, when you're even contemplating doing something that you recognize that if someone knew about it, they would know it's wrong. Mm -hmm then there is this little conversation in your mind that works out the alibi. Either what you would say or what you would, what surely other people would think. They, they, would, they would interpret it this not right way so it would look okay, whatever it is. It's, it's quite a scary thing. And therefore, if you preserve your truthfulness so that you may render yourself incapable of deviating from the truth, whatever may happen to you, it will also serve you as a shield against many sins. The more you accustom yourself to truth and make, make falsehood intolerable in your mind, the easier it is for you to resist those things. And I got to tell you, when you start noticing this, it's pretty terrifying. Okay. Okay, I'm going to stop there. There's uh, other amazing, amazing ideas in this essay. But this is what we need for the moment. Good morning, Mommy. Um, do we have a mask or something? Okay. Here, one second. Okay. So, all of this, which according to my recorder is 38 minutes of background information, <laughs> was this idea, which is, why do we have to say, why do we beg first to Hashem, that you give man knowledge and teach us Bina, and please grant us Dea Bina and Haskel first. And only then, Hashivenu Avinu Secha, return us to Torah. Help us do tshuva. Bring us close to your avoda. I think it's exactly because of this. Because inherent to the sin, not to doing the sin, to preparing for the sin, is falsehood is this opposite process of das. It's a conversation not with someone else necessarily, but even within ourselves that is telling the self something that is not true. That is what brings us to the sin or allows us to the sin. And it also prevents us from tshuva. It gets in the way. It is very hard to repent of doing something and regret doing it if you're still telling yourself how it's really fine. 
right? That you have justifications and rationalizations and explanations, but then how are you going? Sorry. How are you going? How are you going to ever turn around what you're doing if you're still telling yourself this story? So in order to do tshuva, we first have to be open to das. We first have to struggle to see things as they truly are and see ourselves as we truly are, which is kind of a hard thing to do. It's hard because it's difficult, and it's difficult in part not only because of our limitations, but because it's painful. And parts of our mind will notice that that's about to be painful before our conscious thinking has brought us there, which can lead you to turn in other directions of thinking real quick before it's too late. So I think that this is one thought for the davening, not on Rosh Hashanah, because those bakashos are not the Rosh Hashanah davening, but leading up to it in Elul and afterward going towards Yom Kippur. It's a new layer of kavana in Atahonin Adam Das is help me help me be able to see what I need to see as it needs to be seen and not fool myself in such a way this is in here by the way because part of truthfulness is flattery so okay so I have one or two other sources on this topic that I wanted to to bring as well um Hi, thank you. Okay, so this is from the Or Yisrael, which are the letters of Rav Yisrael Salanter, the 30th one. Kein gam inyan osim tshuva, ve'enam osim tshuva, hu'alpi bechinas yediyah sichlis. I'm not an expert in translating Or Yisrael. It's not that the words are hard. There is an aspect, you know, I think there's a, there's a source before this. Hang on one second. I don't see it. Okay. There's those who do tshuva and those who don't do tshuva. And the difference is yediyah sichlis, intellectual knowledge. He's going to go further. It's not only intellectual knowledge. Intellectual knowledge. Im ha'adam api yediyah ha'sichlis muhshar l'tshuva azai ha'kadosh baruch hu ma'arich apo umamtim so, oh, there is another source, but I don't have it over here. I don't have it down here. It's a source, but what is it? Is it Hilchos Tshuva of the Rambam or Rabbeinu Yona on Tshuva? I don't remember. It's a distinction of those who are Osin Tshuva doing Tshuva. Meaning, that's the Ikar, not not that you have done teshuva, but that you are doing it in the present sense. So what is the difference between those who are doing teshuva in the process and those who aren't? If a person is in their mind, muhshar teshuva, like prepared, mentally prepared and ready for teshuva, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he extends his patience and waits for that return, for that tshuva, and the person keeps living. 
There's no rush. The person is on his way. He may be really, really far, but he's on his way. But if, God forbid, according to his thinking and his mind and his rational thinking, he's in no condition to return to God with tshuva, even if he wants to do tshuva, like, it doesn't say will, but like his bechira, like he says, no, I'm tshuvaing tshuva. But he hasn't actually prepared his mind in such a way as to be like open for that process to actually happen. Then God forbid, it could be a situation where God says, you know what, like he's not even on the road. You know, <laughs> Rabbi Goldberg gave a, a, um, a mashal. He said, and this, I think he said this mashal was based on, I forget who he said he heard it from, Ravi Rucham. He didn't hear, wouldn't have heard it from Rabbi Rucham. I don't know who heard it from Rabbi Saul Salanter, but each one said it in terms of the place they lived. So he said, you get in the car and you decide you're going to go up to Oxnard to the winery for dinner. But you don't know how far it is. So you ask somebody how you get there. They say, well, you just go north and it's about an hour, an hour and a half. And then you'll be there. So the person drives for an hour. There's no signs of the winery. He drives for an hour and a half, no signs. Two hours, no signs. So you pull over and say, do you know how much farther till I get to Oxnard? And the person looks at him and says, well, you're in La Jolla. Right? <laughs> okay. Whoops. So you need to make a U-turn on this freeway, right? Get off the freeway, get back on going north. And then it'll be about three hours or three and a half hours and you'll be there. Okay. So you turn the car around. Now you're going north. You're in La Jolla. Are you closer to getting to Oxnard now? Or were you closer to getting Oxnard when you first got on the freeway in L.A.? Well, the answer is you're closer to Oxnard down in La Jolla facing north than you are in L.A. facing south. Because... <laughs> Facing south, you're never going to get, I mean, you know, get all the way to the South Pole and come back around. Like, you're not going to get to Oxnard going south. It doesn't matter that you're, you know, 60% closer. But if you're facing north, you're on the right road. That's the road of Osin Shuva. The process of saying, I'm turning around and doing Teshuva, Teshuva means returning. It's getting myself facing the right direction. We don't actually get hung up on did the person correct everything that was wrong and get to a, a place of perfection in their deeds. What we say is, are, do you know what direction you need to go? Do you know where the good deeds are? Do you know where that perfection is? Are you heading in that direction? Are you taking any steps? If you're taking steps and they're in the right direction, then you're on the right road. If you're on the right road, God has lots of years. He's lots of patience. He can wait. He'll wait for you to come. But if you're not even on the right road, does it help to wait? If you're, if you're going south, does it help to say, I won't say anything? No, the person just gets farther and farther away. If someone's on the right road, then I don't need to nag them. I don't need to keep telling them which way to go. Because eventually they'll get there. So as long as I'm not in a rush, who cares? That's fine.
Okay, this is the mashal. If the person is on the right road, if their mind is prepared so that they truly are like in this acceptance of the tshuva mind, now they, in their mind, they're facing the right direction. So Hashem will wait. There's no rush. Okay. Unless, and then he says with, about the person facing the wrong direction, it doesn't mean that the person's going to, going to die, God forbid, right away, because it's possible that person has some merit. Maybe, the, I mean, people do good things. So they may not be on the road of tshuva, but they might have other merits that demand that they stay alive. That's also possible, and not a bad thing to invest in either going into Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> so what is the foundation? What's the basic principle for a person to be in this category of muhshar l'tshuva, that his mind his das, I think, really here, right, is the ground is prepared and ready for the tshuva. It's being able to arouse a, a feeling, like a sincere emotion of being sensitive to your lacks, to your failings. Being able to feel them and sense them. It's, it's being able to see yourself with honest eyes. So that's an example, you know, when we're talking about different things like the emotions bringing along the physical body and the actions. Here's an example of the mind bringing along the emotions. Where the mind, we can think about certain things and try and think about them in clarity and with truth, and doing that, spending the time thinking truthfully, can arouse the emotional state. But it's an emotional state that recognizes how far we have yet to go. That is the emotional state that says, maybe I'm facing the wrong direction. Maybe for the last two hours that I've had too much pride to ask directions, I was actually driving myself farther and farther away from my goal. Maybe if I just keep going on like this, by the time I get where I want to go, it'll be too late. It'll close. Okay. That kind of ability to think truthfully can arouse the emotional state that will hopefully wake a person and arouse him to do tshuva, to turn himself around. Avalim ein hergesh. If you don't have the clarity of the thinking, then it's hard to get to the emotional state. And without the emotional state, how's the tshuva going to be born? Where's it going to come from? So this, I think, is this kind of das followed by tshuva. I think this is what we're asking for to a great extent. There's something similar in the Chovos Halavovos. He says, How's a person going to do tshuva? It becomes possible after the person becomes knowledgeable, yidia, has yidia of seven things. One of them is, the first of them, that's the source I have over here, I didn't pull out the Chovos Halavovos. The first of them is, to have an honest das, shiyeda, gnus maasehu yidiya barura. To have a clear, honest image 
of how shameful his own deeds are, which what Rav Hirsch told us is that our subconscious fights that. It keeps telling us, alibi, giving us alibis and excuses and stories to cover up. Because if a person does not have that clear, He's going to be satisfied with what he's done. Or he's going to say it's an accident. I, could, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. Everyone does it. So it's not possible for him to regret what he's done wrong. How is he ever going to ask someone to forgive him? God or anybody else? If you can't see that what you did was wrong, how will you ever ask forgiveness? How will you ever have harata? And he quotes a pasuk in Tehillim. Keep shy ani eda, because my sins, my errors, I know of. Vechatasi negdi samid. My sins are before me always. If they're in front of you, so you're on the right road. You have somewhere to go. You're, <laughs> you're facing the right direction. Something can happen. But as long as the das isn't there, or it's clouded, or it's eroded by the sheker, which, based on other sources, I think we, we understand that comes through the snake, right? That lying falseness. Then what, you have nothing to work with. Okay, so I think that's... I was going to also talk about this Pachad um, Yitzchak, but the truth is, I think we did it, we, not, we, I think, we said this on Shabbos, so I'm not going to repeat it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just remind you, the basic principle was that with malkos, with the lashes that can be meted out for certain sins by a in for certain crimes, um, the Rambam teaches that there are two qualifications, two halachic qualifications for whoever gives that punishment. The person who holds the lash and whip somebody, right, up to 39 times, un, up to 40, but not including 40, right? They have to be chasire koach, weak in strength, and yesere meida, and have an excess, an above average amount of das. Because the das is what allows you to understand where it's coming from. And understanding that the need for punishment and the need for... for for there to be a punishment exacted from the person because of their crime is a function of an expression of mishpat, which is not by itself a driving force. The driving force behind din and mishpat is chesed before that, and the desire of God to give us good for our good actions. And all of that, of course, ties together with bechira and how we choose. So I'm not going to review that because that was a long piece and we just did it, but that's really ties into this same idea of the, the knowledge being necessary for the tshuva. And uh, wish us all a ksiva v'chasima tova and a shana tova, although hopefully I'll see you on Shabbos. Um, there's a lot to work on. <laughs> there's a lot to work on. Actually, maybe I would like to share with you Do you want to, you have time for one more, one or two other ideas? I could do one or two. So one of them is this. I think we mentioned this last year, but I saw like a, an insight, like not an insight, but um, the concept, hang on.
just realized.